The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Many of you may have heard the very famous story of the five missionaries who lost their lives while attempting to bring the gospel to the Horani people. Uh, The Horani were a tribe deep in the Amazon rainforest and were commonly called Aukas, which means savages, because they were so violent. And not just violent toward outsiders, but even violent toward people in their own tribe. In fact, there were so many revenge killings in the tribe that it threatened the tribe's very survival. But five missionaries with the Alliance Church, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Yodarian, they decided to engage this tribe with the gospel. And uh, so they began by dropping gifts to the tribe from an airplane. And then when those gifts were reciprocated time after time, the missionaries established a camp close to the Harani settlements. However, on January 8th, 1956, the Harani people, for some reason that's still a bit unclear, speared the five missionaries, killing all of them. And at first it's difficult to even think about what a how great of a tragedy this was. Especially when you consider the fact that each one of these men left behind wives and children. How could these seemingly senseless killings have any purpose or accomplish any good? However, a few years after these five missionaries were killed, two women, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot up there, And Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint, decided that God was calling them to go back to the tribe that had killed their loved ones and continue seeking to share the gospel with them. And so they went. And the Horani people were so amazed that these women would would come back to the tribe with with this message, even after what the tribe had done to, to their loved ones, They listened to what the women were saying about Jesus. The women explained how Jesus also had loved his enemies. And in fact, had loved them so much that he even willingly died to pay for their sins. And one after another, a significant portion of the Harani people came to faith in Jesus. As a result, tribal violence virtually stopped and the Horani became different people. (laughs) What the Bible calls new creations in Christ. And the women even shared the gospel with some of the same men who had thrown the spears at their loved ones. And those men, those very men were among those who came to faith in Christ. 
Also, in addition to the conversion of many of the Horani, the story of uh, the sacrifice of these five missionaries served to galvanize the missionary movement in the United States so that thousands of other missionaries were sent out all over the world to proclaim the gospel. They went because they were inspired by the story of these five missionaries. So God used what at first appeared to be a senseless tragedy to do something more glorious than anyone could have imagined. And that's what we see also taking place here in Acts 8, 1 through 8. And in order for us to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to think back to what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 7. If you were here that week, you may remember that a Christian named Stephen was proclaiming in Jerusalem the message of Jesus. He was arguing very persuasively with the Jews that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah sent to rescue them from their sins. And the Jewish leaders ended up getting very upset with Stephen and arresting him and falsely accusing him of saying all kinds of things he didn't say. Yet even then, Stephen didn't back down. He, he actually called the Jewish leaders to repentance. Now, as you might imagine, the Jewish leaders didn't appreciate that very much. And so one thing led to another, and they ended up forming a mob and brutally killing Stephen. Even as he prayed out loud for God to forgive them of their rebellion, they kept throwing stones at him until he eventually died. And there are some significant similarities between Stephen's death and the deaths of those five missionaries that I mentioned. Like those five missionaries, Stephen's death must have seemed utterly pointless at first. I mean, think about the ministry that Stephen had. There was every indication that he was an up-and-coming star among the early Christians. Not only was he one of the seven men appointed to oversee a significant portion of the church's daily operations, but he also had a powerful evangelistic ministry. Acts chapter 6 how we was performing, uh, records how he was performing all kinds of miracles that were designed to point people toward Jesus. And also that he was a powerful preacher as well. In fact, he was such a persuasive speaker with such an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament that Acts 6.10 states that his opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So this guy was a spiritual powerhouse in the early church. Yet tragically, his life was cut short and his promising ministry abruptly ended. Not only that, but his death triggered a massive persecution against the whole church. What a disaster, right? Yet as we're going to see, God was up to something in the death of Stephen Because Stephen's death actually ended up triggering much more than just a persecution. 
it ended up triggering the church's first great missionary outreach. And that's the main idea of our text this morning. Stephen's death triggered the church's first great missionary outreach. As one commentator writes, Satan's attempt to stamp out the church's fire merely scattered the embers and started new fires around the world. Look with me at how it's described in Acts 8, 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So praise God for the way he works. He was able to take the tragedy of Stephen's death and use that to bring about something amazing in the advance of the gospel. Because just think about the church in the first seven chapters of Acts. They had some really good things going on, right? I mean, there was solid teaching in the church and and the people were ministering to one another and lots of people were being healed of all different kinds of sicknesses and, and folks were coming to know Christ every single day, right? This is probably the most vibrant church that has that the, the world has ever known by just about any measure. However, up to this point, were they really being obedient to what Jesus had told them to do in Acts 1.8? In Acts 1.8, Jesus had instructed them that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Those were their instructions. Yet prior to Acts 8, had the church really made any effort to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem? None that we know of. They seem quite content staying there in Jerusalem. And that had to change. And so God, in his great sovereignty and wisdom, he gave him a little nudge in the right direction. Actually, he gave him a pretty big nudge. He used Stephen's death and the persecution that ensued to trigger a massive missionary outreach throughout that region of the world. It reminds me of that very famous quote from Tertullian, one of the church fathers from the second century, who observed that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And maybe you've heard that line before, but here's the, let me give you the full quote. 
Tertullian's writing this, by the way, to a ruler in the Roman government who was responsible for a lot of the persecution of Christians in that region of the Roman Empire. And Tertullian says this to the ruler, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Nor does your cruelty, however exquisite, avail you. It is rather a temptation to us. The more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And that's often been the case in the history of the church. Over and over again, just like we see in Acts 8, and just like we see with Tertullian, persecution has had the effect not of extinguishing the fire of the gospel, but of actually adding fuel to the fire. It's caused the gospel to spread even more rapidly. And I can't help but wonder whether that might be one of the key reasons why the church today is in such a sad state of decline in our country and and in other Western nations. Could it be that things have been so comfortable for Christians for so long that it's actually ended up weakening both our devotion and our witness? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we should intentionally try to provoke persecution or or even that we should desire persecution, right? I certainly don't desire persecution. But at the same time, I think it's good to at least be aware of the ways in which persecution can actually serve to advance the gospel. Very briefly, let me give you three main ways in which I believe that's the case. First, Persecution galvanizes Christians toward greater devotion and sacrifice. There's something about seeing spiritual brothers and sisters endure severe hardship, and in some cases even death, for the sake of Jesus, that stirs our hearts and and makes us more inclined to be bold in our own gospel witness. It's like it causes all those things in our lives that don't really matter to fade into the background and reminds us of just how worthy Jesus is. That that he's worthy of our everything. He's worthy of us enduring scorn. He's worthy of us having property taken away from us. He's worthy of us being arrested or even tortured or even killed for the sake of his name. He's worthy of it all. And I'm not sure there's anything that reminds us of that reality quite as powerfully as seeing our fellow fellow Christians enduring persecution. Second, Not only does persecution galvanize Christians toward greater devotion and sacrifice, it also creates an environment conducive to a more powerful gospel witness. Think about Stephen in Acts. Surely 
his prayer for the forgiveness of the mob that was killing him made a powerful impact on many of the people present. I mean, who does that? Who prays for the forgiveness, for for God to forgive the very people who are killing? And Stephen's not the only one. Church history is filled with innumerable examples of Christians demonstrating astonishing love even toward those who are persecuting them. And also boldly sharing the gospel even in the most adverse circumstances. I mean, you know, it's one thing for someone to tell you about Jesus when it doesn't really cost them anything. But when someone tells you about Christ, even though they know they'll pay dearly for that testimony, it kind of makes you think twice about what they say. And then finally, persecution eliminates nominal Christianity. A nominal Christian refers to someone who's a Christian in name only. (laughs) Meaning that their commitment to Jesus only goes skin deep. They're willing to be a Christian as long as it's not too inconvenient. And as long as it doesn't require any significant adjustments in their lives. And if the Bible does speak against a certain aspect of their lifestyle, they're totally fine just passing over that command and focusing on other things. So it's kind of like a buffet-style approach. You know, they feel complete freedom just like you're walking up to a buffet to you know, just take some things and pass over other things, other commands of Christ. That's nominal Christianity. Jesus is great, as long as he ends up enhancing our lives. And I don't think that there's anything, and I mean that, anything that hinders the spread of the gospel as much as the presence of nominal Christians in the church. But persecution... It takes care of that problem real fast. So that, with few exceptions, the only people still left in the church are those who truly love Jesus and are truly devoted to him. So those are some ways in which persecution actually helps the gospel spread. And I believe all three of those things were happening to some degree in the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom. His martyrdom had the effect of galvanizing the early Christians toward greater devotion and sacrifice. It also left a powerful gospel testimony ringing in the ears of everyone who had seen Stephen killed. And if there were any nominal Christians in the early church before Stephen's martyrdom, I think it's pretty safe to say that there probably weren't any after his martyrdom. And of course, in this particular situation, Stephen's martyrdom actually went beyond these three things as well. So it accomplished these things, but also accomplished more. It triggered additional persecution that resulted in Christians being scattered throughout that region of the world and taking the gospel wherever they went. 
Again, the main idea of the passage, Stephen's death triggered the church's first great missionary outreach. So God, here in this passage, he used tragedy for triumph and persecution for a purpose. And indeed, that's the way God often works. In fact, the unfolding of the story here in Acts 8 follows the pattern of the central story of the Bible, the gospel. Perhaps you remember me mentioning at the beginning how Stephen's death must have seemed utterly pointless at first. Here was a man with so much potential to make an impact for the kingdom. And his life and ministry are tragically cut short. Does that remind you of anyone? How about Jesus, right? Because like Stephen, Jesus' death must have seemed utterly pointless as well. Here also was a man who died in the prime of his life. I mean, just think about all of the additional things that Jesus could have done and taught if he had lived for another few decades. Imagine if Jesus had a public ministry that lasted for 30 years instead of one that lasted for three years. How much more of an impact could he have made? And yet, it was through his death that Jesus accomplished the salvation of his people. You see, what we need isn't just the moral example that Jesus provided in his life. We need the atonement Jesus provided in his death. Because the Bible teaches that you and I and everyone else in this world have sinned against God and therefore stand guilty and condemned before him. But Jesus took our sins on himself when he died on that cross. You understand that? He he suffered the penalty that we deserved. Then after Jesus died, he resurrected from the dead so that everyone who puts their trust in him can be rescued from their sins. And so now, looking back on the cross in hindsight, we can see that what at first seemed to be the greatest defeat was actually the greatest victory. What at first seemed to be the worst disaster in the history of the world was actually the greatest accomplishment in the history of the world. As Jesus himself said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So like Stephen, Jesus bore more more fruit through his death than he could have ever done merely through his life alone. That's just the way God works. And by the way, our lives are no exception to that. God can bring the most wonderful outcomes even out of the darkest and most difficult experiences 
we'll ever endure. He does it all the time. He masterfully orchestrates it all to accomplish His perfect purposes. Not one bit of our suffering is ever wasted. So as we think about the unfolding of the story here in Acts 8, we discover that these events are cut from the same cloth as the gospel. We might say that they contain unmistakable echoes of the gospel through and through. Also, there's another very important feature of this passage that we certainly don't want to overlook. We've said that Stephen's death triggered the church's first great missionary outreach. But who were the people who engaged in that outreach? Who were the missionaries? Because we might expect it to be primarily the leaders of the church, right? But look back at verse 1. It states, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So because of this persecution, the Christians of Jerusalem were scattered throughout that region of the world, except who did it say? The apostles, right? That's what the text says. And then if we look down at verse 4, here's what we read. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So who were the scattered ones who went about preaching the word? Was it the apostles or the leaders? No, it was everyone else in the church. The so-called ordinary Christians who spread the gospel here in Acts 8. As I've heard one pastor say, it was the Joes, not the pros, who spread the gospel in this chapter. And that's really how God designed the church to function. Listen, he hasn't designed this to be like a, a professional sporting event where you have you know, a handful of players who are actually playing the game and then everyone else just sitting in the stands as spectators. You know, Becky and I, a couple of weeks ago, we went to the PNC Park to see the, the Pirates play, if that's what you could call it. And uh, I can tell you that only a very small minority of people at PNC Park were playing baseball. Possibly none, but at most, a very small minority were actually playing baseball. The rest of us, we were just chilling in the stands, right? We were talking, we were eating, drinking, having a good time, right? And the sad reality, though, is that if you leave PNC Park, and you go around to various churches, it doesn't take very long to observe that many of those churches aren't all that different. Many of them are full of spectators also. But that's not the way God designed it to be. God's design is for every Christian to do what these Christians here in Acts 8 were doing and take ownership of the mission that Jesus has given us. God calls every Christian to be a missionary. And throughout the history of the church, that's how most of the advance of the gospel has been accomplished. Listen, don't let all these celebrity Christians running around nowadays fool you. 
Okay? The church has been advanced primarily throughout history, and even I would say in the modern era, it's been advanced primarily through relatively ordinary Christians who are faithful to their calling to be missionaries in the various spheres in which God's placed them. Among their family and, and friends and neighborhoods and, and workplaces. You know, thinking of our church in particular, one of the blessings of this past month or so has been the opportunity that going to two services has given us to get more people involved in what we do here on Sunday mornings. Believe it or not, I, I actually counted it up and it even surprised me, but believe it or not, we, we actually have 60 people who are volunteering on a regular basis uh, in our church on Sunday morning. Six, not every week, a lot of them are on like rotations and things, but 60 people are actively involved in official volunteer positions on Sundays. I love that. I mean, that's about, that's about three quarters of what we, our normal Sunday attendance, which is absolutely incredible. I mean, I praise God that we're in the church where such a strong majority of people are helping out in very meaningful ways on Sundays. However, just understand that that is only the beginning of God's calling in our lives. For those of us who are Christians, God gives us the calling, even the privilege of being ambassadors for the gospel throughout the week. He calls us to embody a missionary lifestyle where sharing the gospel with people is just a part of the fabric of our lives. And a lot of it happens in the, the context of just normal and ordinary encounters with people. Um, just this past week, Rick and I were um, getting a bite to eat at a local Panera, and a, the, the woman who was clearing off some tables around us, she told me that I had a nice smile. And so I replied to her that the reason for my smile was because of Jesus and, and because of all that he'd done for me. And, and she seemed a bit intrigued and interested in continuing the conversation. And so I was able to share a few other things with her as well. And then, then Rick jumped in and was able to explain the gospel even more thoroughly with her. All in the context of just a normal, very natural conversation. Uh, normally, I you know, try to be very sensitive to the fact that you know, people in that industry are, are pretty busy and might not want to talk to me all day, but she seemed to be pretty interested, so we just kept on talking. I think we talked around five or ten minutes, I would say. And so that's what I'm talking about when I speak of living a missionary lifestyle. You just talk about Jesus in the course of normal, everyday interactions with people. You see, just like the believers in the Jerusalem church were deployed as missionaries when persecution broke out, God wants each one of us to be deployed as missionaries also when we walk out of this building on Sundays. Just like the early Christians were scattered, we're scattered 
each and every Sunday after the worship service. And that's why we recite the Great Commission every, every week right before we leave. It's to remind ourselves that our departure from this building is in reality our deployment onto the mission field as missionaries in this area. Do you view yourself that way? Are your energies focused in that way? To what degree is your life oriented around the gospel and around that calling? On your seats this morning, you probably noticed a short brochure that you might have mistook for a bulletin, uh, but it's actually not. It's actually a very practical nuts and bolts kind of guide for being faithful in our missionary calling. It's entitled A Blueprint for Evangelism. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I certainly hope you'll read it when you get home. But just to go over a few major things, the booklet's divided into three steps. Step one is to identify people that you know who may not be Christians yet and begin praying for those people by name every day. Then step two is to continue developing relationships with people so that that you actually become genuine friends with them. Just get to know them. Develop a friendship. And the book gives several ideas for doing that. And then finally, step three is to share the gospel with them. And the book gives some tips on how to do that in the course of ordinary conversations. Such as, for example... Trying your best to make the conversation a true dialogue rather than you just preaching at them. And, and also using your own personal testimony as a vehicle for sharing the gospel. It also talks about the evangelistic Bible studies, which have proven to be very fruitful in our church. And I don't think it would be an exaggeration to call them our church's main method for organized outreach. So this brochure contains some very practical advice for those of us who are Christians to be faithful in our missionary calling. And guys, perhaps the the most encouraging part of all of this is that we're guaranteed to see results. You heard me right. If we're consistently faithful to share the gospel, we're guaranteed to see at least some results. You see, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation and has chosen people all over the world, including in this area, to be saved. People from among among our family and friends and and neighbors and and our co-workers. And so if we're just faithful in sharing the gospel on a consistent basis, then we know that God's going to use that to bring at least some people to faith in Christ. In fact, it may shock you whom God saves. God frequently likes to save people who, from a human perspective, seem to be the most unlikely to ever embrace Jesus. I mean, just look at Acts chapter 8. And perhaps some of you noticed who was mentioned in verse 1 of the passage. Did you catch what it said? 
right after it describes the death of Stephen in the previous chapter, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. Of course, Saul also was the one spearheading the efforts to persecute the church in in verse 3. Many of you are probably aware that this Saul who approvingly stood by as Stephen was murdered and and who spearheaded the persecution against the early Christians, he would later become the Apostle Paul. And he would be what I believe is probably the greatest missionary in the history of the church. Don't ever forget that God can draw anyone to faith. Even those who currently seem the most stubborn and resolute in their unbelief. And of course, the ultimate reason why we reach out to others in this way is because of how God has reached down to us. You know, it's true that a missionary lifestyle is neither easy nor comfortable. But when we think about the grace that God has shown us in the gospel. And how could we not orient our lives around his glory and around his missionary calling for us? I mean, if there isn't something within you that yearns to see God's name glorified and and to see his kingdom advanced, then I'd have to say that there's something that you just don't understand about the gospel. You might be able to articulate the truth of the gospel very skillfully, but there's something about it that you just haven't grasped yet. If you're content to orient your life around the American dream instead of around God's missionary calling. Just think about Jesus. There's a very real sense in which Jesus was the first missionary. Because Jesus left the glories of heaven and entered into the brokenness of our world on a mission to save us. Understand that he didn't have to do that. Right? I'm sure it was very comfortable for him in heaven. He was under no obligation to do anything to help us. And yet he loved us so much that he came and lived and died to pay for our sins. There's never been a missionary like him. And it's his missionary endeavor toward us that drives us to live as missionaries toward others.